Christ became for each of us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and here's the word I want to focus on for the next several weeks, redemption. That's written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ became for each of us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Uh, I'm Andy Jenkins, and here's what I would like to do is really take on this idea of redemption and talk through really just a new series of episodes. And let's just be real, they're, they're kind of teaching type things, but they're honestly... They're, they're really just sermons. I remember about two and a half years ago, I was speaking at a men's event in Dallas, Texas, and I got up there to talk, and it was, it was a business event, and we were talking about life and several other types of things that kind of centered around life. And in this particular talk, it was on a Friday evening, I was going to break script and talk about emotional wholeness, and, and I did. And, and I did it from, from the cross and talking about really one of the areas that Jesus redeemed, which I'll share all of that information with you uh, maybe in another month or so when we get to that area of this kind of series of talks that I want to do. But I, I remember that night telling the guys, hey, so I'm up and I've got basically 45 to 50 minutes to chat with you. And, and I just told them, I said straight up, I, I think this is going to be more of like a sermon and kind of, kind of preachy, not preach down, but talk with, uh, knowing that, you know, like that saying says, when you point a finger at somebody else, you're always pointing at least three right back at you, plus the thumb. So really realizing that all the words are kind of need to be said to the man in the mirror first before they're said to any other audience. But I wanna to talk to you about this concept that I began studying several years ago anew as if I had never ever studied it before. Uh, Now before I get there, let let me do this. Let me give you just kind of some housekeeping details. Uh, Number one is about a month and a half ago, I I became a certified life coach with my friend Dave Braun and Troy Omdahl, uh, the ULA guys. And so there's some information that I'm going to put in the show notes. I've got an absolutely free Facebook group that we've just started. And every single week, I go in there and talk live just to people in that group that want to dive deeper on just living a life of balance with less stress, uh, doing the most important things, cutting the most important people in and the less important things out. And you can completely do that. You're, you're created, as Troy often says, you're created for extraordinary. So why settle for ordinary when extraordinary is inside of you? You were created for greatness. Why settle, if you just want to use Bible terms, why settle for the natural when you were made to sustain and to walk in the supernatural? So all that information, just get the link that's in the show notes. Just go over to that group and it's going to ask you a question. Basically, where did you hear about this group? You heard about it on the podcast and then we'll let you in. So that's it. The second thing is if you want a copy of the ebook from what I'm going to be teaching you, you can always get the notes on my blog site just by following the links in the show notes. But uh, the Redemption ebook, that's the name. I've been working on this book for, it's been a project of a couple years now. And uh, as you're going to hear in this first episode of this series, it's a project of something that I started teaching back oh 2011ish so this stuff is about nine and a half almost 10 years old by the time I'm delivering it via audio to you but if you want that information on the ebook it's totally free you can go grab that just follow the link on the show notes go to the homepage at jenkins.tv just like my name it's all there all right so here it is February 2011. Okay, so file way back in time, February 2011, I began really this interesting journey. It was an odd series of twists and turns, but because of that, I began teaching the information that I'm going to share with you now and over the next few weeks, and that's in that redemption ebook. At the time, I was working at a nonprofit in my hometown. I live in Birmingham, and we were providing housing for men, women, and families who would come to us from prison human trafficking, addictions, and our city streets. Uh, I've literally been in more drug houses than you you could count probably on all your fingers and toes. Um, Some of the people that came to us, they were on early release from prison. 
Uh, many were court-ordered to complete our nine-month program. Others came to us really because they had nowhere else to turn. Now, that January of 2011, I faced what, in hindsight, it really created a crisis of faith for me. And in fact, one of the themes that I'll tell you if you hear my story at some point, uh, if you've got time and you want to sit out on my porch here at the house on the hilltop and just chat, I mean, talk about crisis of faith. Lots of episodes of that through the decade of the 2010s. Okay, so... At the time, that first one, 2011, I really felt that God had been leading me to do something and that he continued opening all these doors that I couldn't fathom that he would open. They're doors that I never imagined could actually even be opened. But then, just as we were set to walk through the final door, I felt like I got the door just whoo, just slammed in my face. I was crushed. I was embarrassed. It was public. I felt humiliated. And at the bottom of it, I really felt like God had totally abandoned me. Uh, Here's the situation. We'd hoped to move our ministry as a 501c3 faith-based into a former hospital complex near downtown Birmingham sometime that month. So for those of you who know where we're at, this is the Caraway Hospital Complex. I worked for over a year on that project. I had arranged details with the owners of the property. Uh, The property at that point had been sitting vacant already for a lengthy amount of time. Uh, I met with local utility companies, uh, execs at Alabama Power, at Allegasco, well, now it's Spire. Um, All of those places, I mean, even all those doors just opened. There, There were no reasons that people even in the mayor's office should have met with this, but they they all did. Network with dozens of other nonprofit ministries who were going to move into the facility as well. And the idea, it, it was simple. We were going to create a massive one-stop shop for human services. It was a place where people would be ministered to in the name of Jesus, whatever the need was and whoever they were. So we were slated to open various floors that would house people based on their specific needs. So uh, like one floor in that hospital would have been a men's transitional floor. Another would have been for women. Another would have been for families who would have not had to separate from each other to be sheltered in our city. Uh, At that time, uh, families uh, would have to split apart in order to find shelter if they didn't have a place to go. Uh, We were going to have a floor for state certified, not state controlled, but state certified, credentialed drug rehabilitation. We, we could detox people and help them literally get back on their feet. We were going to have another floor to rescue victims of human trafficking from our city streets. Uh, we had already started that. In fact, um, the first two, three women that were rescued actually lived in my house with, with my family until we um, we're partnering with another 501c3 that could open up space for them. And then that whole 501c3 was housed with us. Uh, anyway, other, other floors in this hospital would house college interns who would receive college credit while living and working on site. I'd, I'd met with presidents of local university to discuss that and to work out the details. Another floor, it would house people that were making short-term mission trips to serve in our city. Um, A a friend of mine, this is a very close friend, uh, one one of those people that you may have a friend like this one, it doesn't matter what you're doing, as long as you're with that person, anything in the world is completely fine. He, He moved his entire family across country to assist with that specific college intern serving, meeting needs practically, these big massive serve days that were going to happen every single month, short-term mission projects. He was going to head up all of that and moved here to do it. Uh, Now, in addition to those housing components, dozens of other ministries and nonprofits plan to move into the building with us. We we weren't going to duplicate anything they did. Uh, We would all move into the facility. They wouldn't duplicate anything we did. Everybody would just work from their strengths and then Really, this entire facility would become a massive, uh, for lack of a better term, one of the realtors that I was working with, his, his, his company that he represented, he was a consultant, actually owned the property. He, he was a man of faith, and he, but a businessman. He actually said, 
It sounds like this is going to be a ministry mall. And, and it did. You know, we had things that other nonprofits didn't have. They had things we didn't have. We, we could all come together. We could serve. We could be the body of Christ in action. And that, that meant this, that as a team, we could provide a platform for any volunteer in the area of our city or anyone that traveled here to serve in the area of their unique gifts and calling. We would allow them to serve among any of the ministries. We were going to do this once-a-month orientation where they could come in, they could see the site, they could learn about what was going on, a representative from each of the different 501c3s or ministries or whatever they were. They would all just be able to say, hey, here's what we do, and we would empower these people to serve wherever they wanted to serve because they were serving the greater good of the whole team, not just whether it was with me or with this other organization or, or some other. We, we were all in this together. It, it meant this, that by doing that, we could meet the need of anyone who walked through our front doors. This was, you know, even now as I think back, I'm like, man, this was a beautiful, incredible picture that I saw manifesting right before my eyes. The only problem humanly speaking, is that politics entered into the equation. Now, about that time, I remember there was a singer-songwriter, still listen to him, uh, great. Derek, Derek Webb, uh, you may remember him from, if you grew up in church world in the early to mid-90s, Cademan's Call, uh, he was one of the guitar players and sang a lot of the songs with them, eventually struck out on his own. And he, he had this song, Savior on Capitol Hill. And he ruminated this line, you can always trust the devil or a politician to be the devil or a politician. But I can still, like it's hard to even say it without even saying the cadence because he has this rhythm as he sings that's always kind of uniquely his. And even though that's a cynical statement, even in the most cynical of statements, there's always a layer of truth. The stereotypical politician hits right what you would expect from a politician, right? And, and I, I know, I get it, there's, there are incredible politicians serving at every single level of government. The reality, though, is many of them, they see their platform as a unique ministry, like Paul rightly says in Romans 13, 1, if you want to go search that. And, and many of them, just like any other role in the world, are just there for personal gain. So personally for me during that time, I thought things would be different for the politicians that I was interacting with during that season. But turns out you can always trust a devil or a politician to be a devil or a politician. Yeah, you know, like I, my, my propensity to trust was was wrong. I I never actually thought I would hear it, but I did. Here's here's what I was told: "Quote, I have to get reelected this year, so I can't do anything controversial." That came from a top city official. He he it was a he he, and I'm I'm not gonna out him. Uh, felt certain that meeting the needs of the broken and hurting in our city, that that was ironically a surefire way of not getting elected again. And it was a complete flip-flop from the stance that he had taken just about two to three months before, back when he and his staff were completely supportive of what we were doing. Here, here's a quote. like Just kind of go into the office there with me. Don't, don't misunderstand. We want to help people. That's what I was told. This is a tremendous idea. This is the perfect use for that building. The location is fantastic too. And then I heard from one of that official's aides, no one else actually has a viable use for the property. What you guys are wanting to do just makes sense. Now, let me, let me put a little footnote in this whole talk. The guy I was talking to is no longer in office. He won that election, the one that he was concerned with, but lost the next one. 
uh, ironically, they said he wasn't progressive enough. He was out of touch. And it it really, when I, when I think back, and I, I can't judge this, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things where you ponder and you think. It makes me wonder, what, what would have happened had this man walked in his true, I think, God-given authority? Anyway, rumors were meandering through the nearby neighborhood associations that we were going to put 600 prisoners in the facility, uh, turning it, in effect, to a penitentiary. Okay, that, that's the rumor that allowed free come-and-go access for violent people. And the rumor was that all of the people that we had were mass murderers, of course, and they would all be wearing, get this, orange jumpsuits, which prisoners in the state don't do. Um, this would be right down the street from the local entertainment center that was slated at the time to be built. That entertainment center has been built since then, uh, about a mile away. Everyone was certain that everybody would just be out on the street corner smoking marijuana, of course, not cigarettes, and that they would be eyeballing everybody's children. Now, as that yarn kind of circulated among a few people, and I, I do mean a few, the politicians got cold feet. And it, it was really, in that time, amazing how a handful of people could strike fear into the heart of a few other people, a few, both ways, that were bent on political gain. And, and of course, none of the rumors were true. We, we were going to allow for the transition of some prisoners, but they were all nonviolent. And they'd comprise less than 10% of the total facility housing load that was even slated. And at the time, we had successfully been doing this for almost three years at that nonprofit that I was working. And even before that, had been doing this at other nonprofits and had a history of working in other similar nonprofits. We graduated by that time, 500 people from our program, and none of those graduates had relapsed. So we were told, here, here's how the city presented it. We're, we were told that zoning allow, zoning ordinance didn't allow for people to live on that campus. It was really this sprawling campus. And it, it was laughable because there were already people living on site across the sprawl of the campus in a nursing home. So I thought, I thought, well, this has got to allow for group living. And so I spent an afternoon researching and I learned this. Dozens of other facilities in town that housed people in, in what would be like a group living situation, they had the exact same zoning that this hospital had. And th there was also, and remains still on the books, judicial precedent for what we were wanting to do and that we had the necessary zoning because there was one facility in town that actually had to sue the city of Birmingham in order to have residents to remain in that facility. Um, it was a smaller building that they had opened for such use, even though it's a big, huge facility, just smaller than the Caraway facility. Uh, I'd, I'd actually spent some time working there. Now, about that time, I remember it was probably a week or two after studying this and kind of running it up the flagpole, sending it to the city, to the you know zoning and ordinances. About that time, a neighborhood leader, he was connected at the city level he and, and at the governmental level. He, he comes, he's introduced to me by a neighborhood officer who comes to my office, and he promises, I can make this entire process go smoothly. So I'm thinking man, this is great. Like you live there, you know everybody. You can just help them understand exactly what we're trying to do, that this isn't what they thought. It's not what they were sold by a few naysayers who don't even live in that neighborhood. But while we were sitting in, we had this meeting room at the office because we, we had a shared office that had maybe, you know, 10, 15 people officing in one big room. And then we had different meeting rooms that we would go have, like meetings that we need to have in. We went to one of those meeting rooms and here, here's what he says. I just need to be paid. Now, now my, my eyes glazed over as I looked at him really in disbelief, kind of. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you to go make your neighborhood better and to clear up miscommunication and misinformation. And, and, and then after this long, awkward silence, he continues. Um, un under the table, of course. No one can know about it except just us. Now, 
from that, I, I think you can see where this conversation headed quick. Uh, we, we were being asked not to pay someone as an employee, but to do a payoff, a, a bribe. And so though no one was asking for money on, on our staff from the city, and even though the city had adopted at that time a 10-year homeless eradication plan that had and still has made very little progress. The plan was running from 2007 until 2017. So right then the city was right in the middle of it and, and had 3,000 plus homeless people in, in, at the time, the city of Birmingham. And, and, and though there were no other options for another huge vacant building downtown, we, meaning I, my team, we, we were left with, at the time, three options that, that we could identify. Number one was this. It was the legal option. Sue the city of Birmingham and do what another nonprofit had successfully done. Num- number two was the illegal option. Pay the man off. Number three, you just stop, pause, and wait. Why well, I didn't want to I didn't want to do the first. I didn't want to sue the city. It's difficult in in my mind to tell the city you love the city, you're for the city, you are working on the city's behalf, yet you antagonistically set up a legal court battle against the very city that you're trying to pursue in love in the name of Christ. So I, I didn't want to do that. The, the second option, the illegal option, pay the man off, I was unwilling to do that. That left us with just one option, the third, which was to pause. So I, I opted to wait. My thought at the time was that if this is from God, if the entire vision that we had is really indeed is, is his, then it would come to pass in the right time. And, you know, I, I really... To, to be honest, just to be transparent, I still struggle with that thought pattern. I don't regret the decision that I made, but I still struggle with it in some sense. I mean, you know, this is just probably the question that many of us wrestle with. If Is everything that happens really God's will? You know, like, if this is God's will, it'll, it'll come to pass. And if it's not, it won't. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think everything that happens is. You know, if, if you say everything that happens is God's will, then you're saying murder and war and rape and pillage and riots and looting and destruction and famine and sickness and death. You're necessarily saying if all things that happen are you know, God's intention, then you're, you're lumping that in there too. Um, maybe we'll take on that concept in a, a few weeks because I've been writing down some notes about it. So is everything that happens his will? I don't think so. Is everything that doesn't happen, if it doesn't happen, does that mean God didn't want it to happen? I don't, I don't, I don't think that's the case either. I think life's a little bit more complicated. I'm learning more and more that although God is in control, it doesn't mean that he controls. So he may, he may be in control, but he doesn't control everything. I know that seems like a nuanced thing. We'll circle back in a few weeks. Here's the other thing. Like on a practical level, I I realize that you you could do a coffee shop or a laundromat or a gas station in your own strength. It's not that you should, and it's not that it would be easy if you did. It's just that you could. But to open a several hundred thousand square foot ministry mall that would eventually provide living space for upwards of a thousand people, an office, an operating space for 80 to 100 other nonprofit ministries— I mean, we literally had 30, not, not, not 30 as in a round number, like just kind of estimating it. I mean, literally 30 listed other organizations ready to move into that facility on day one with us. There, there would have been 31 tenants, including, including my organization. To have that all operating under one roof, working together around the clock, as, as really let me just use the phrase, as a, as a church, not, not really an organized church, but just kind of as the body of Christ in action that, that never sleeps, that would require the hand of God. And so I, I wasn't going to kick that door open. 
So instead of kicking the door in, which is admittedly what I do as a matter of course whenever doors get closed, at least in the past up to that point, I, I figured that maybe we would just pause and we would do the things that we could do. Like any anything that we could do, even not being in that facility, we, we would just do it. So at the time I was thinking, I was convinced that waiting doesn't mean that you just sit and do nothing. Uh, and maybe that's a good word for you. Like right now you're waiting on a job or role. Right now you're waiting on a relationship. Right now you're waiting to meet that special, significant someone. Right now you're waiting on, you just insert the blank. Like it seems so many of us are waiting on certain things. Waiting doesn't mean to just sit and do nothing. And, and I, was, I was at the place where you might be when you're waiting. Like I, I feel myself battling depression even though at the time I didn't know that's what it was. I didn't have language for it at the time. And then I was getting bored. Um, the project had consumed, you know, 2010 had consumed my entire 2010. It was now January of 2011. It was a whole nother year. And I, and I was just in this pause pattern waiting. So I, I figured even if the vision was on hold, if it was delayed, even if it was over, I decided we could faithfully work and do work in the field that was in front of us, like trusting that the Lord would open up doors as as we were ready. So uh, that's what I did. And as I did, there was some tension that grew. Let me, let me explain some of that. That, that same year, I, I watched others use my, my plans and pass them off as their own. Uh, they used my diagrams. I had an 80-page description of the ministry center. I'd, I'd written it out. I'd created a business plan to where literally everybody could just kind of read it. We'd be on the same page. And another organization came in and put a contract on that facility. In fact, they went into a lot of debt on that facility, even after we were passed over and we wouldn't sue the city. Like I guess they were going to pursue that. And they they went into a lot of debt to, to do this. And... It still didn't pass, uh, even though they sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars in, into the facility. In, in the process, they passed off my stuff as if they came up with the idea and as if it was theirs. Uh, I, I also remember sitting and just listening as criticism was launched at me and the vision was misrepresented repeatedly and people would write you know letters to the editor of the newspaper and really just kind of misalign we had we had people questioning the motivation for this in the first place uh, in fact most people couldn't fathom that there wasn't a pot of gold at the end of that supposed rainbow like it was beyond people that at the end of it the goal was simply to help people some people were sure that we were going to get rich, loaded off this project. Uh, at, at the time, uh, I lived in a different house. Right right now, you've seen a lot of the renovation that I've done on my Instagram stories and on Facebook and some of the pictures. You know, I live in this house that and we just call it the hilltop. It's up on this hill that's um, very close to this. It's, it's a really cool story that I'll talk about. Uh, another another time about how it all came into place and, and what it is. But at the time, I lived downtown uh, over in Avondale. I'd lived in Avondale at that point for uh, about 12 years, and it was the second house I'd lived in in Avondale. And it sat on a rolling hill, the, the second house did, and, and kind of up on top of the hill. It's the kind of hill that it's not huge, but you're maybe this will help you frame it. It's the kind you're impressed with with when you're in fifth or sixth grade and you want to race skateboards and bikes down it because it gives you like just that quick roll. You know, my kids would go down the hill and just call it tires on fire when they were small. I remember doing that kind of stuff. But it's the kind of hill that even though you'll notice it if you're jogging and you're you got to go up the hill, you barely even notice it when you're driving around as an adult. 
had a great view of the skyline downtown year round. And I remember at Christmas, there are certain buildings downtown that they light up and put the certain colored lights on the sides of the buildings and make Christmas type ornaments. Like one side of one of the buildings will be a Christmas tree and another side might be a stocking. You know, they use red, white, and green lights to do all of this. Um, when the trees drop their leaves in the fall, it gives you that perfect view. And so January provided me with a perfect view of this hospital, or the former hospital. It was about two miles off in the distance, and the view from my front porch, it was during that season. It was a reminder of where I was now, meaning not there, as where I plan to be. It, it was almost like you know, just to use religious language, like I could see the promised land, but I couldn't quite make it across the Jordan, but yet it was there. And and all of this, I, I could see it while people are misrepresented. I could see it while another organization actually spent all this time and money and acted as if they had it. And they, they did, but they just could never make it happen. I, I remember on the front porch swing that I had out there, just kind of musing one afternoon about what the ancient Israelites must have felt like around the time Malachi spoke. He promised them, he was the last prophet at the end of the Old Testament, he promised the return of their Redeemer. The Redeemer was the one who, in their mind, had seemed to abandon them. And some of them, even in that season, they had waited so long and seeing nothing in terms of tangible spiritual progress, that they actually concluded it was worthless to serve God. That the life of faith had produced no gain for the grit that you endured when you just kind of stand firm, stand fast. That That's actually Malachi 3.14 if you want to look at that. Maybe you've been there. I've been there as I've seen relationships fall apart, as I've seen destiny and calling just moved to the side, as I've seen relationships fracture, as I've seen people that you know, you're know once close to basically just lie and then do something completely different <laughs> than what they assured you they were going to do, you know, or after you get betrayed when you're in covenant. And again, and you think, at this point, like I'm walking out a difficult road, is it even worth? Well, Malachi back then, Malachi 4.2, he said he's coming quickly and things are going to change. But then even Malachi's message, it was followed by 400 years of complete silence, like virtually the same amount of time that the Israelites spent in Egyptian captivity from kind of the post-Joseph years until Moses came and redeemed them. 400 years that they were in bondage and slavery, just quiet. And then when Malachi says, hey, the Redeemer's coming, like he's going to change things and people are just waiting and they're feeling like they're politically oppressed, they're economically in distress, they're just getting pummeled, not, not just spiritually and emotionally pummeled, but like physically just the drain. And it's like, he's coming, but it's like a 400-year wait. And, and then even when Jesus shows up, it's not exactly what many of them, most of them were expecting. In fact, if you read the Bible closely, it seems like a significant chunk of the message could actually be summed up in this phrase, hurry up and wait. That, that's hard. I, I don't like waiting when I go eat dinner tonight. I'm going with a friend that's come to town. We're recording some things tomorrow, and uh, we're, we're going to go eat at one of his favorite restaurants. And I, I know when we get there, they're going to give us one of those little light-up things and say, wait. And I'm going to think, well, after 15, 20 minutes, can you, like, I'm going to go up there and say, hey, can you check it? Like, are you sure mine actually works? Because we've we've been waiting and it's so much harder when it's real life and when the stakes seem more important and grandiose and when there seems just relational and real world life, financial stress type of tension that affects big important things. Yet, it's in the waiting that the greatest change often happens inside of us, right? I mean, I learned that waiting during that season 
and, and, I, and I'm going to shoot straight with you. Like I'm still learning that waiting, even though it's hard, it creates this sacred space where great things happen. And, and waiting can be a time when God does something to you so that later he can do something through you. And, and I think this too, if, if we're going to blame God every time something bad happens, then you got to credit him every time something good happens. And that act of maintaining a divine balance sheet, a God-type scorecard, it is an odd, hard, difficult, impossible game to play. And eventually you just learn that there aren't many tidy answers, that most things seem black and white, but there are so many different shades of gray. And you let go of the need to understand everything, and you simply allow grace to do its great work. And most of the time you figure out that that great work, it begins with the transformative process inside of you, not outside. So often, I think I've had this conclusion that if things out there would just change, if life on the outside would just get fixed, that everything on the inside would be easy and I would be able to get along and move forward and all that. And so often what, what you really find out is that it's not out there that needs to shift. It's it, it's like a heart shift. And so to go back to that season, during then I, I saw the Lord's hand moving during it all. And I simultaneously got frustrated and lived frustrated and simultaneously lived seeing his hand. It was both. Um, he opened other facilities. He opened up a great space with land that was donated and really the property that we ended up in, it was a great facility. It was outside of the inner city. Um, was not as convenient to drive to, but it had some property. It, had, it, was, it was sprawling and it, it came to us only as a result, free, of already having the previous plan already written down. So all that work on the previous front and it wasn't for naught. In the process, the, the Lord assembled this great team to work with us. And most of those people that began working with me weren't even people that I knew a year previously when I was putting all of these pieces together. He literally sent people walking in through the front doors in the right time. He, he also gave me time. By, by not building out on paper this business plan, he, he gave me the time to start writing and publishing and learning to shoot video and learning to do things like podcast and talk. It gave me space that, that I would even say was a sacred space to begin implementing and pursuing new projects. Um, let, let me give you some examples. Like One of the first things that we did is we opened the doors for a human trafficking program. Another 501c3, I had alluded to this earlier, it moved into our offices and began housing women who were exploited. And we just kind of underlined, this happens in our city. These, these weren't people from Africa. These weren't people on the other side of the planet. These weren't people from New York City or Miami, even though this happens in all of those other areas. And I mentioned Africa because I'd been to Ethiopia uh, right by Ethiopia when we went to Tanzania to climb Mount Kilimanjaro to raise money for Hope for Justice last fall. Um, and they opened up Safe House right there. And so so often we think of human trafficking as something that happens way over there, but it was happening in our city. We, even in the process of that, partnered with other groups to provide air support. They, they would fly out of state and snatch women from the fire, really to refer to a verse at the end of the book of James, and they would bring them to safety, to sanctuary. Um, when our existing housing filled, we, we, now we, we would have had plenty of space in that hospital, but you know at the time we're crammed, we're making do with what we had available. Um, several of the women, they actually moved into my home with my family. And I remember at that time, I remember laughing, having a conversation, laughing that people in that other neighborhood were freaking out about prisoners living down the street, the possibility. And here I was at a combo of prisoners and former prostitutes in my house um, with, with, with my kids. Uh, we began creating ministry intern program. That, that was maybe a second project. 
there were there was too much work to do and not enough people. And one of the things we figured out we could do would be to find people who felt called and who wanted to, whether they had been through an addiction or been through rehabilitation or been reentry from prison, now back to uh, you know normal for lack of a better term, life, and, and wanted to turn around and give back if they wanted to pursue this part-time, full-time, whatever, a, an intern program. So we, we wrote our own material. In fact, I'll, I'll put a link to it down in the show notes where you can go get the big book, The Kingdom 101. Um, it was really a theological, practical distillation. It gave me that break of waiting time to wrestle with those concepts and really begin understanding them. And I'm, I'm still working on that. Um, one of the third things we did is we, we launched what would have been one of the staples of the ministry mall. And that was the Thursday evening midweek worship service. Now, that was going to be a time when we would create a massive weekly family reunion type of atmosphere. Uh, residents of our program could bring friends and family uh, we plan to invite all the neighbors around, the, you know, in that area of town that could just come out and see and participate. Um, it would be scheduled on Thursday evening, so donors and ministry supporters from us and from even other other nonprofits and other ministries that were in that quote ministry mall, they could easily attend without interfering with any of their church activities that they had on Sundays or Wednesdays. And, and we plan to have this cookout before the service, not attend service and we'll feed you, but just, hey, show up at five o'clock, we'll feed you. By the way, we're doing this at seven if you want to stay. So what I'm getting at is with those three ventures, and, and there were more, we basically began doing what we could do during the waiting, trusting that as we were really obedient with what the Lord had spoken, we could simply trust him to open the other doors in his own timing. Now, again, this was nine years ago. It was a lot easier to say all of that now than it was to live it in the moment. And, and that's one thing I want you to hold in tension is it, it sounds like, oh, it's, it's got a tidy answer now. It's, well, in hindsight, everything's got a tidy answer. But walking through it was constantly this this tension. And I figured, you know, we hope that door would open. It never did, by the way. Other doors open. But I thought that we would find ourselves, I would find myself, the team would find itself more equipped and tooled to be a blessing when the doors did open, what, what, whatever they were that we couldn't see. Now, as I was explaining all of this to one of my friends Back, back nine years ago to my friend Jason, I was explaining to him that, hey, you know, we've we're got the human trafficking thing, like we're working with this group, they're handling that, but they're officing with us and they're housing the women, you know, one of our facilities, we, we're, I'm working on this uh, intern program, here's how it's going, this is what's going on, we're wanting to do the midweek service, and he asked me, I remember, and th this was during, at the church that he and I were both attending at the time, they, they were doing this 21 days of prayer and fasting in January. It was, it was just happened to be during that season. He's like, hey, well, where are you going to do that midweek service? This is January, 2011. The plan, remember, had been to host it at the hospital. And it was a large room. It used to house medical records. It was, it was like this basement type thing, but it was uh, open air on three of the four sides and it could hold several hundred chairs, you know, so we, we were going to do it there. But since we weren't there, we just thought, well, we'll just start small and we'll just grow to an area that fills whatever size we can. So I told him, it's like, I don't know. Like, I, I know we need to do it, but I, I don't know where. And, and I sensed that we were not supposed to do that worship service at what was then our office building. It was a warehouse downtown that had a large area that could have been used I mean, so large now it's a, I mean, it had been a church before. Um, now it's a, it's a club uh, in this warehouse. It's a big space. We'd, we'd been preparing to move from that facility for quite some time anyway. Well, he looks at me and he's, what, what about the Dream Center? Turns out Jason, unbeknownst to him at the time, would be hired in the next two weeks to manage the Dream Center. And when he asked the question, he was simply dreaming about possibilities for me, not necessarily possibilities 
with me. We spoke to Robert. Robert is the doctor who conceived the original vision for the Dream Center. The Dream Center is a community center. It's a ministry outpost. It's in the inner city. It's in Woodlawn. And he was on board. In fact, the two of them, they had led a small group the previous fall at the center, and they were contemplating not scheduling it again for another run. They originally had a small group of 10 or so that were attending each week. They had hoped to grow that. They had envisioned something like we were describing. They just didn't at the time know that we had envisioned of a similar thing. And just with where they were and the demands of all the other stuff they had going on, it just hadn't gotten the traction that they had hoped. So they, they were going to pause for a bit. Now, we had no idea they were even doing that and what they were thinking. But here, here's what's interesting is the Lord did. And he had supernaturally intertwined our paths over really a few previous years. So for that season, uh, I really believe he knit us together on a singular vision that had no egos, no ulterior motives. It was content to release everyone to serve boldly and beautifully, really as long as, and here were the two criteria. I think Robert actually is the one that articulated this. As long as, number one, it, it was fun, and number two, it glorified Jesus. So... Those two criteria, fun and Jesus. This was in January. The, this door opened to, to do something with them. Just as the other one, it seemed like and felt like, was getting slammed shut. Now, I honestly thought that it would be incredible if we built a launch team through the spring so that we were able to kick the midweek event off early summer with a team of about 50 volunteers. So we're going to build it slow. And we begin meeting on Thursdays, really only two weeks after that initial conversation. Again, hoping to build up to 50 volunteers by sometime, you know, later. Well, it turns out that first week, 85 people showed up. Um, that night we had hoped only to have all the pieces of the evening roll out on time. That means the guys show up to cook on time. The food's ready to serve on time. The music cue, you know, and begin on time. The, the, you know, any kind of talk message type thing, start and stop on time. So don't go long, end on time. And then that group and the excitement, it continued to grow from 85 to 100, 120, 200 plus, and this was during the middle of the week, in the evening, in the inner city, which all those criteria are are things people tell you people won't come to, but yet they did, and and the, the criteria that we had, they were met. Number one, it was fun. Number two, Jesus was glorified, and people continued encountering God and getting saved every week. The number of people who had these first time, like what you'd call them in church world, salvation encounters, it topped 100 by week 10. I remember meeting with a small group of leaders at my house a few weeks in. We were meeting every single week, the leaders, you know, from a different thing. And I remember we were deciding, like, let's pray for something like amazing this spring. Let's pray that like 100 people like encounter the Lord and get saved by the summer. And so we did. And, and it happened about five weeks earlier than anything we imagined possible in our biggest prayers. And in that, I learned a huge lesson throughout that entire experience. Now, again, walking it was harder than explaining the story in the rearview mirror. So even if it wasn't something I could articulate for a few years, because again, some of the greatest wisdom, it's attained by time and experience and looking back. You know, you, you can't cram life experience any more than you can microwave grapes and create fine wine. So here's, here's what I've learned. Circumstances do not dictate your calling. Some of you need to hear that. Like you need to like get that in because you feel like, again, if the outside changes, the outside world changes, if the circumstances are just right, like you could do what you're called to do. But the circumstances don't dictate that. I mean, I can show you it's straight Bible. Paul was murdering Christians when Jesus called him to begin leading Christians. Now, Solomon, a man who boasted 700 wives and 300 concubines, he's the one that wrote the quintessential book, Song of Songs, about marriage, dating, love, sex, and intimacy. 
David, he was a shepherd boy with no platform when God called him to slay Goliath and then anointed him as king of Israel. Moses, which is going to be more relative to the topic of the next several weeks, Moses was a runaway fugitive, a murderer on the run, in hiding, when God called him to go back to the palace from which he fled justice, and then instead of just giving himself over to justice, demanding freedom, not only for himself, but for all of God's children. Your circumstances don't dictate the gifts that God have given you. And even though people, particularly religious people, would like to put restrictions on what you can do and what you can do, and if you're qualified or not qualified, it doesn't exist in the kingdom. And when they set themselves up that way, so often like churchy people set themselves up and put on these requirements and commands that God doesn't require. So the circumstance doesn't dictate the call that God has on your life. And we decided that building or no building, we could just begin doing the things that we were gifted to do, working just where we were. Now, that meant that, you know, in some sense, I'm a teacher. Um, I've, I've actually been called an uncredentialed rabbi, even though um, I'm not Jewish and ha- haven't been. Um doesn't matter the context, though. Whether it's church world, the business world, or whatever this is that I get to do now, that gift always surfaces, that teaching thing, and it makes room for me to do something. That's what Proverbs 18, 16 says, is that your gifts will make room for you. Not your circumstances will make room, but your gifts. Not your title. Not, not your role. Not your, it, it says your, your gifts will make room. And so what happened was that gift began making room for me on those Thursday evenings. Now, all of that, (laughs) that leads me to the subject of really what I want to share with you for the next few weeks, for the next few episodes, next few talks. So you you can call them like sermons if, if you want. As early as the third week of that study, first week, we're just kind of getting it together. Second week, we teach some great material about calling and purpose. But the third week, we see the momentum and we're like, okay, we, we've got to come up with a plan. And we were trying to decide what are we going to teach? You know, what, what are the people who were coming to us every week? Many of them, again, coming from prison, from drugs, from the streets. What, what, what do they need? And, and what did they need to know that really, I mean, let me use the term white collar business leaders need. And what do blue-collar laborers need? I mean, what can we teach that provides common ground for young and old and rich and poor and people who've been in church for years and people who weren't even in church ever? What, what could we teach even that people who weren't even religious? What, like, what could we teach that would be just across the board and still be honest to our faith tradition? By that, that time, three weeks in, one of the local drug kingpins, he's attending as well as several of the local prostitutes. And no, they weren't working when they came, none of them. Each independently of each other, they were all captured by grace. They'd have been invited into a family. And so as, as we were praying through all this, we, we used to meet myself and Rob. He was my friend that moved across country to do the intern program and the short-term mission trips. And so now he's like, well, I'm here. I'll do what I can. And he, he had this phenomenal ability to get on a stage and lead people. And Rob knows no, I was going to say shame. That's not the right word. It's like no reservation. I mean, totally just in the open in front of people. He's like, I'll I'll lead the singing. And so he got some tracks together and put some songs on the screen. And with some tracks, man, that guy led the music. And so Rob and myself and Robert, the doctor, and Jason, who was leading the Dream Center, we got together every single week and just met to review, hey, how did it go this last week? What are we doing this next week? And I remember during one of those meetings, we we pray and we sense the Lord leading us to share three basic truths that I mean, honestly, the church often misses them. We, now, we, we didn't decide we're going to teach these because the church misses them. We just, now looking back, in hindsight, I'm like, these are things that aren't taught that often. Here they are. Number one, people of every race, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, age, occupation, whatever the case, people need to know how much God loves them. 
they don't know. Many have been taught the opposite, that like he wants to judge them, get them, smack them, that threaten, uh, is displeased with them, that if they would turn or not, not burn, they need to know his love. Number two, those same people, all of them, need to know how much he's done for them because of his love. Like, it's not that just he loves them. It's like, number two, there's this force of action that he backs it with. And there are now, number three, there are definite things that means because he's made certain things available for them. And they need to know what's possible so they can live the life that he's created them for. In other words, I mean, part of it means people need to know their true identity, that who they are now, regardless of where they've been, is full of potential and purpose, not, not full of past. So we wanted to move them from what the world says about them based on the past, based on education or lack of it, based on paychecks or lack of it, based on family structure or lack of one, based on job title, based on letters they place after their name denoting some degree or credential, or based on uh, nicknames that people give them, good or bad, or everything in between, based on anything else. You know, you get the idea. We, we wanted to move them beyond what the world says and move them to what God declares to be true. And the greatest example of that, of God's love, is, is the cross. So I began studying the cross as if I'd never seen it. I began surveying it through fresh lens. I uh, wanted to know if I could look at God's great display of affection in a way that I hadn't seen it before. Totally, completely new. And then I want to know if I could simplify the message of grace, if I could make it easy to understand and easy to hold on to. Like I wanted the people that we were teaching to leave encouraged, but not just encouraged. Like I wanted to simplify it so much where they could leave being able to remember what they had been taught. Like to remember it so they could apply it and to where so often, like you think about when you leave church and you go eat lunch and somebody says, hey, what, what, did the, what was the sermon about today? You're like, well, I have no idea. Because there were seven or eight points. Like what if, what if we could just simplify it and make it so deep but accessible at the same time to where people could actually remember it? And if we could do that, then we would be able to teach people how to live free. So that, that, that is a long setup. Let me fill you in on some details as I wrap this up. I'll probably just crash land this episode. The building. Let me tell you about the building because people always ask. Anytime I talk about this story, they go, what's up with the building? Because, yeah, that's what caused the crisis of faith and led to all of this. So almost a decade later, after that, it sits empty, abandoned. Since then, even though the realtors had been getting it ready for us to occupy, I mean, literally replacing ceiling tiles and getting the air running uh, at full capacity and cleaning the windows and full-time security on-site just to make sure everything is fine, now the spray-painted walls, graffitied, they're crumbling, uh, the windows have all been burst, even on the top floors with rocks. Uh, the iron, the copper has been pulled. The ceiling tiles are gone. Anything of value has been looted, plundered. Uh, what was once an immaculate commercial kitchen that local restaurateurs were going to come and teach other people how to know and do that trade, that craft, uh, while we fed everybody, like all that's been plundered, gone. So rather than boasting what may have been the largest community center in the U.S., our city, um, and th this is a great city, but we have a one million square foot eyesore complete with overgrown shrubs and graffiti. And maybe, maybe the building's waiting. Maybe its time is still yet to come for something. Um, 
yeah, me now I'm working and doing something, but also I, I think I'm still waiting. Like such as that's the condition of life, right? And, and I think I've realized I'm, I'm in this active waiting phase, an active waiting phase in which I'm holding the process of spiritual transformation and enlightenment very tightly while holding the outcomes more loosely. Um, I'm in an active waiting phase in which, you know, a home-based business honestly provided a venue to do some amazing things and to live a more simplified version of life that gives me the opportunity to work from a home office and have more time to spend with my kids, to record podcasts, to travel, to talk, to to, to create resources like this one. Uh, I'm in an active waiting phase, I think, where uh, the Spirit is still truly setting pieces of me free to where hopefully I'm learning to live more and more like the presence of Jesus to the people who are around me. And so, when, you know, when you look back in retrospect, again, hindsight, hard to live forward, but you look back with 2020 hindsight, I say the domino effect of things that happened because of the pursuit of the hospital building. You know, the, the business, the working from home happened because of the, the next property and the intern program and developing some resources happened because of that working the schedule that I get to do as opposed to 75-hour, 80-hour work weeks happen because of all of that, stepping away from administrating and organizing in order to focus more on creating content, connecting with people like you. That happened because of that pursuit. So, you know, really in the Lord's economy, there's this verse that I wrestle with, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. And Ecclesiastes 3, 11, where he makes all things beautiful in his time. It doesn't mean all things are good. It doesn't mean that all things are beautiful, but it somehow means that, you know, God is so grand that he can take and he's so grace-filled that he can take really a crooked stick or a backwards pitch and stick still create the home run, still make something beautiful, still turn, I mean, to quote some of my pastor friends, turn a mess into an incredible, extraordinary message that times of test eventually become, you know, that phrase, the testimony yeah, the reality is many of the blessings of life now that I experience, they're a result of chapters of failing. And, and I, I don't mean like what seemed like at the time, failure. I mean, looking back and go, hey, that, that was, by any way you slice it, that was a failure. And the reality is, again, waiting is a time when God often does something to you so that later he can do great things through you. And that process... It never stops. It never stops. And it seems to me that the Father is always orchestrating things for my freedom, for your freedom, regardless of how those things came to be. And here's maybe how extreme that is. A couple years ago, and I'll end just in the next couple minutes here, I read a book by Brennan Manning, and he says, if that Romans 8, 28 verse is true, that all things really work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That means that if all things, that somehow means, and he just kind of repeats it because it, it seems mind-boggling. That, that means all things. That means even your failures, even your flaws, even your sin. Somehow grace is bigger and redeems and pulls it all together. Now, I started this talk with that verse from 1 Corinthians. I'm going to flip back to it here. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ became for each of us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And that redemption word, that is what we began teaching on Thursday evenings at the Dream Center. So I've wandered here for an hour and almost an hour and five minutes. 
And so I'm going to cut the story there. And in the next talk, I'll come back and I'm going to talk about that word redemption and what it is that really we started delivering to others on those Thursday evenings that became a super sweet, seemingly too short of a chapter, but was completely set up by something that failed. And as a result, now you and I are on this podcast and you have this information that I'm going to share with you. So go to the website. If you want to drop into the Facebook group, there's a link right there. Just drop in and say, hey, I want to be in the Facebook group. Heard about it on the podcast. And if you want the ebook to this information, just grab it absolutely free down there in the show notes on my website. Until next time, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord be gracious and shine his face of favor upon you. And may you sense the nearness of Jesus who is on your behalf, even when it seems that there isn't a way, that you don't know what to do, that he is, he has become, and now is for you your wisdom. That you do know what to do, that you can see what he has become your righteousness, that your standing relationally is secure, that he has become your sanctification, that you are pure. Not stained, not flawed, not shamed, but clean. And he is, as we'll talk about in the next episode, your redemption. Grace, 